All right, people, let's do this one last time. You know who I am. Your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. 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 I'm Spider-Man. I'm not the only one. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a Geek Explained Extra series that we're calling Spidey Sember, name pending. Where, <laughs> as the clock turns and as we get closer and closer to the release date of Spider-Man No Way Home, I, alongside my fellow webheads, are going through all of the theatrically released Spider-Man films. I am joined, of course by the friendly neighborhood Chris Carter. Hola. And the spectacular AJ Kincaid. Well, hello, hello once again, listeners. We're back. The boys are back in We're town. Back. We're back. The same boys that brought you watching The Watchmen. The same boys that brought you into the Snyderverse. We are here, oh, we are ready to go, and hopefully we're gonna have a better time than the DC movies. <laughs> Shots fired already, here we go. My but man! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right! I hope we find something. I hope we find something as good as that carried us through the entire thing. For <laughs> we, I mean, like we we <laughs> we get the Jason Momoa equivalent right in this movie, don't we? <laughs> we we sure do, and I can't yeah. wait to talk about that with you. So today we are diving into Spider Man, the original Spider Man film released oh. in two thousand two, directed by Sam Raimi, written by David Coe though there is a bunch of other stuff that went into the production of it and i'm going to touch on that in a second and this was really this was the one that started it all this one you know we've talked uh on the main podcast we've talked in conversations that you know there were other attempts before to really kind of kick off the like blockbuster superhero genre but a lot of people really attribute it to this film as really being kind of the spark that lit the match now before we get into talking about the film itself do you guys remember the first time that you watched this film? I'm going to go to Christopher Carter first. Yeah, I, I do remember because I was in the theaters. Oh, Yo. I stood in line. We are all from Tucson. So Tucson, I was out. right. I was the alcohol mall with my girlfriend at the time. I had no desire to see it, but she... she <laughs> He looked like Kristen Dunst, so she's like, oh, "I gotta go see it." That you know, it was it was the early two thousand. You know, you know, it was a crazy time, right? But it was. I mean, I, I can tell you that people were so excited for it. Uh, the line wrapped around the movie theater twice, which is attached wow. to a mall. For people that don't know, and also I saw a bunch of people get kicked out. Um, at the time, you know, Fandango. What I'm, I'm dead serious. Sounds like, like Alcon Mall, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> Midtown Tucson. Um, I, so uh, there was a there were a few people who didn't buy tickets because Fandango wasn't really a thing at that point. You had to <sighs> show up early to the theater to buy your ticket yeah. and then come back later to use that ticket. There was no uh, online purchasing. So I remember those days. Dang. dark times and so this dude showed up and he's like i've been waiting my whole life for this and i felt bad because you could see he was sincere like he just didn't know like a lot of people the gravity and 
and everything, the spectacle that went along with this release that we're going to talk about later. But yeah, I saw it in the theater opening night. Uh, it was 2002 it was Friday. Um, but yeah, man, I was there and it was cool. I, you know, that the first time I saw it, it's been a while ago, but it was enjoyable. And uh, oh, yeah. the spectacle was real. Oh, yeah. You could tell like, like it, it's funny, 2020 hindsight, right dudes. But like when you're there, you knew that you were watching something special. Even if you didn't necessarily like it or agree with it, you knew that it was going to be something big, you know, like the Fast and Furious franchise that Eric, you know, holds so near and dear to his heart, which it's I hate. still big. It's it, still it's, great. It's I still know, rolling. It, it, it is. It definitely is. But, the, but, the, but it was the same thing. F9, like the, fa- the, fast the first saga. Fast and Furious. Yeah, that's, that's F22. Um, when that first movie came out you could god. tell it was gonna be no god no <laughs> no movie guys no um but you could tell that was gonna be something big and you could tell that this was gonna be something big too but but yeah that's my For sure i was there story aj do you remember the first time that you watched spider-man I, you know i i honestly was trying so hard when i was re-watching it this morning to pinpoint because i when the when this one came out i was nine years old and to be like i realized that like nine years old at that time for like superhero movies was such a like in my memory a blur for only a few but such a rich time because we had this going on and the x-men at the same time and like the other or fox uh like which we'll be diving into in our next geeks play (laughs) extra series i'm game i'm game let's do it all let's do daredevil and electra too okay see now you're going too far now you're going too far (laughs) (laughs) saving that for matt draper or anyway um i I both kind of do in that I remember seeing it with my family or I remember seeing it with like maybe my mom and, you know, just having a blast, like nine years old for with a Spider-Man movie. Like it, it just, it's, it's a good time right there. No matter what it's a, like, you're going to have like just so many thoughts and so many emotions as of just like, wow, it's finally real. A, all the cartoons and like the little bit of comics that are helping me like get through reading classes and like all of this stuff is finally in front of me. And like, it looks so amazing. The Green Goblin looks so terrifying and <laughs> Spider-Man's yeah. just soaring through the sky. How'd they do that? Yeah, it's, you know, I, I don't think I saw this in the theater. The first time I watched this, it was at home. And I just remember being totally engrossed by it. I mean, it was unlike anything I'd seen before with the, I mean, the score, the visuals, the really, really old high schoolers. Like it was something that like, (laughs) I was enchanted by it. And I mean, I had been familiar with the Spider-Man character thanks to the animated series, to the, you know, loose comic books that i had been aware of at that point but yeah i was just i was just a little snot-nosed kid when i watched this the first time and i mean i loved it i mean i wasn't i wasn't like 45 like chris was when he saw it but oh sorry sorry 42 sorry 2002 i I got my math wrong i i thought Uh, about making the same joke but i did not go that high dude like you go you lowball that that's like 20 years ago i was lowballing it but uh but no like I I remember having a ton of fun with this movie, but the thing that I remember the most about this movie was a certain song that 
accompanied this film that ruled the airways in 2002. Don't you dare, Eric. And they say that a hero could save us. Chad Kroger. Oh my God. The champion of 2002 with that song. But God, what a garbage year for music. Yeah, you know, conversely, the, the Spider-Man Two soundtrack is actually still one of my dashboard confessional has that mm-hmm. song. I anyway, but I don't want to jump. Yes, thank <laughs> you. I love that in comparison to the one that you so eloquently just <laughs> so. sang for us. <laughs> hey, this did have I I believe it was this. It might have been the next one. Maybe it was maybe it was Spider-Man Two. But one of these two films also had a yellow card song, "Gifts and Curses." Yeah, mm. that was again. Two. Yeah, okay. It's a great soundtrack. The second one had a wonderful soundtrack. Super good. But this really was the film that kicked off the Spider-Man franchise. This was the film that kicked off the superhero blockbuster. And it's funny because it took a while to get this film off the ground. It had been in development since the early 1980s. And they had been trying for decades to get this thing working. At one point, James Cameron was going to be doing a Spider-Man film. He had Leo DiCaprio in the title role, and he was going to be rolling. This was going to be a whole, like, epic thing. And at one point, even David Fincher was brought on board and he didn't want to do an origin story he wanted he pitched to the studio that he wanted to do the night that gwen stacy died and he just wanted that to be the film and good you're probably going to cover it but do you do you you, have you ever heard his pitch for the opening of his movie no it's it's very reminiscent of um zach snyder's opening for watchmen but it's the essential sort of quintessential like panels from the oh open, cool but, like, shot in live action and you know both like still motion going through oh, because again he was a he was a uh fuck a, uh i'm completely sp- uh spacing on it like music video guy yeah um, fin- yeah fincher yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So like th- his whole sequence was going to be like scored to a song and like it was going to be the death of or it was going to be Peter Parker becoming Spider-Man and death of Uncle Ben and then getting to that point. Hell yeah. And I mean, I would have been super into that. I think it, it would have been really interesting to see that kind of thing um, put to screen at that point, because eventually, of course, and we'll get to it, we did get the Gwen Stacy death, but this film ended up getting Sam Raimi attached as director in January of 2000. And can I make one point? Yes. Any of any worlds where these three directors like got to make their movie and their version of Spider-Man, nobody's losing. Yeah. (laughs) Like no one's lost. Earth one's earth's one through three are all having great Spider-Man films in 2002. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And it's really interesting. I mentioned the uh, screenplay before. Uh, David Cope is given the, or Coep, or Kep, is given the, uh, given the sole, you know, screenplay and writing credit. But it was actually essentially written by four different people. So the screenplay that ended up being brought into this was actually the screenplay written by James Cameron for his film. Eventually, when Sam Raimi came on, that was the film that they were working off of. Uh, David Kep took it, tweaked it here and there, presented his idea. The studio was like, no, fuck that. So they brought in Scott Rosenberg to do some fairly heavy rewrites. And 
at that point, you know, they were introducing characters like Doc Ock, the Lizard, and the Green Goblin, and having them all together. And Doc Ock was going to be Peter's father figure after Uncle Ben died. And then he goes evil. And it was just a lot. So they eventually paired it all back. And then the studio brought in Alvin Sargent to tweak the dialogue, kind of tighten things up. And eventually we got the film that we got. And when the WGA, when they were officially like doing the credits for it, they're like, they went to the production team and they went to all four of those writers, Rosenberg, Kep, uh, Cameron and Sargent. And they were like, we can put one person on this writing credit. <laughs> Who do you guys want to put on here? <laughs> Literally all of them were like, yeah, it's going to be kept. We're going to give the cap. So yeah. very cool for him to get that writing credit on here. But you mentioned earlier the opening, like having an opening that really like punches through what this is about. And if any film that I can think of has an opening credit sequence that sells you immediately on the tone as well as what you can really expect for the film, this does it. The art of the intro sequence is a lost art at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, usually, you know, especially with superhero films and with um, specifically like the MCU films, you get that nice little MCU header with Marvel and then you just kind of cold open into it. But with this, you get this orchestral score. Danny Elfman came in and just absolutely knocked everything over. This man pulled some kind of spider out of a hat and made one of the most iconic scores and iconic themes of a character of all time. Uh, Agreed. Yeah. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And getting this film together kind of ran into a snag right as it was about to release because they, they had um, released a trailer. They had get got it ready to open up at the tail end of 20, uh, or of uh, 2001. And then unfortunately, September 11th happened. And unlike a lot of films, the 9 11 uh, terror attacks had a very specific uh, effect on this film because the trailer that was shown for this film initially very prominently displayed the twin towers you know there's you can find it on youtube um it was it was taken off immediately after 9 11 but basically it's like this this helicopter it's like this little short film that they turned into the trailer it's this helicopter getting away from a heist and the helicopter eventually gets like stuck in what seems like this net and then it pans out and it's this giant web between the twin towers oh. and then it pans back and then you know it shows spider-man yeah. and the initial poster also had you know a close-up on spider-man's mask with the twin towers reflected in his lenses and again they pulled all of that which totally understandable but it was really it's fascinating to kind of know the effect that 9-11 had on yeah. this film it got pushed back to 2002 and here we go this is the film this is the film that we got um did you guys how did you guys feel about you know the score and that opening sequence and you can take that one because you have most recently seen it yeah <laughs> i mean i mean it's gorgeous like the animation especially still kind of like that air of mystery especially when you first kind of watched it and like way back yeah. when when it wasn't like as 
like used and like this way of it being like just such a simple design and just things trickling in here or there and then to open up into the movie like yeah it's just one of those things that like even still now is just like less is more and and it also kind of like establishes really kind of like how this is it's it's this kind of a simple story it's a comic book movie like and it's treated like that as it should be because at the time nothing else was expected more from it but then it met and exceeded expectations on what that could be and so like everything that i that it is i think works just so well as an opening to describe what the rest of it is going to be yeah and coming off of x-men which would which i believe came out a couple years earlier like this was I mean, the first X-Men I really enjoyed. And coming into this, you had certain expectations of that. So this had to do well, I think, for that to continue because we had X-Men, which was which has been greenlit. You know, Fox is going to run with that for at least a couple more. And they kind of probably knew that after the first one. But this, had we had no idea. So a lot was riding on that. And I think the pairing of Danny Elfman and uh, Sam Raimi, which we had to, you know, Sam Raimi did Evil Dead. So he's kind of known for kind of having kooky, a little off kilter stuff. And, and you could say the same thing for Danny Elfman's scores. Traditionally, I think he did the original Batman, which I was taken to the movie theater too. And <laughs> I was there. I saw Michael Keane's Batman in theaters. Um, although I was young, but you know, Danny Elfman has kind of been known for that kind of back end goofy, scary, but not terrifying vibe, but still kind of uncomfortable. And I think that that's what they were going for with, with this. And, and, and you mentioned it earlier, Andrew, and we're going to talk about it and just the goblin because the goblin to me was uncomfortable. I had no idea about this stuff and I'm sure you guys knew about it, but um, from the score, you can, uh, people would hum it. People would sing it like afterwards, you know, because throughout history it's that no 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 you know you hear it and then it's like oh it's like being rickrolled almost because as soon as you hear it you're gonna start oh yeah it's a cool score so <laughs> for for us to see that for the first time you know it was it wasn't it was pretty incredible I'll, I'll say that i definitely will yeah 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 definitely agree and i think it's we should absolutely spend a second to talk about sam raimi because sam raimi was he was kind of the dream where he like he basically decided with a group of his friends we're just gonna make movies screw film school we're out of here and they made the evil dead and Mm -hmm. from there he became a horror icon and so he was a very interesting choice for this film i mean i think his he has a certain amount of camp to him when it comes to his his uh specific Uh, sensibilities when it comes to filmmaking and it fit in so well with the story that he was trying to tell and the tone it's Mm -hmm. very comic booky because at the time like you said we had had the x-men films prior to this and even before that we also had blade Blade, and the thing that was you know the dna that kind of carried between both of those is that they were very cool and they all wore black (laughs) leather and like that was their deal yeah Yeah, stylish edgy i would say right Yeah. yeah yeah they were all kind of chasing after that matrix vibe and with this they decided no we're not going to put spider-man in some like all black yet costume (laughs) where they're gonna like he's gonna be cool and edgy they fully went into spider dork where peter parker is a total loser and he is you know he's got the bright colorful costume you know you've got people shouting like go spidey like stuff like that it's really 
kind of fascinating to go back and see them take it so earnestly. Mm -hmm. And I think that has a lot to do with Sam Raimi as a filmmaker. I would like to talk about this real quick. Do I it. Cut you. <laughs> you, yeah, you're. And I, and, but to your point too, I kind of think there was lightning in the bottle on this, obviously. But also, it, will you want to see a feel-good film after 9-11 too, right? Like that's what you're hoping to see. So the audience wanted to see it. And honestly, I don't know why they hired Sam Raimi. I'd like to find out what like the motivation was behind that because I'd like to pose a question to you guys. For instance, if they were to reboot or if they were to give an original IP franchise in a comic book realm, that's not, you know, edgy and sharp, like Spider-Man is very soft and kind of family friendly. I would, the first choice I would think of would not be like a, uh, James Winnell or, uh, or, yeah. or, you know, Lee, Lee Winnell or James Wan. The, yeah. I, the horror directors are not who come to mind for me when I think about putting, although, you know, it's funny, Sam Raimi is doing um, the multiverse of madness, right? He is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, brought on, I mean, for me, I didn't, I, I did not know why he was selected to direct this movie, but obviously somebody did something right. I do think it's a part of being at the right time in yeah. history too i like you mentioned eric let's go spidey and just reel a cherry and rah rah and the color scheme very red very yes. you know so it's very american in that sense too we people needed mm -hmm. some of that at that time and you know so but i didn't mean to jump you aj i'm sorry just i just had to comment about that directorial choice no no i get it man i get it yeah i mean there was what was that movie with liam neeson he did that was very pulp fictiony and was the dead guy uh, taken. underneath taken yeah yeah he directed take and like 10 years after this movie came out and dragged um, me to hell and dragged me to hell which felt a lot like evil dead Dra mm -hmm. dragged me to hell felt a lot like it was an evil dead world yeah yeah, yeah. um but there's like some like very pulp fictiony um movie that he made with again liam neeson and uh, the phantom menace yeah the <laughs> <laughs> i almost thought you were gonna say like the shadow at, at some, <laughs> for some reason I'm just like no that's oh that's all other bag of worms though um but like there you can really kind of see the blueprint of you know like a studio looking over just going oh well he did this and this is kind of close to what we're doing and this is pretty fun the, the budget was maybe a little too too much or a little too little or x y and z so we'll give him a shot there but i think like you know, definitely right place, right time. I think also probably just, I think from like what I've seen from like behind the scenes and like interviews, he's just very quirky and yeah. very, very interesting and probably can't, has like all these really good ideas that you would need for something like Spider-Man. If I'm, if I'm a businessman, a producer, I would probably in the interview process, if somebody's like, you know, feeding me, especially at that time, a bunch of dredge and dreary on Spider-Man. I'm going to look at them and go, this is fucking Mickey Mouse for Marvel. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Which is why I thought the Fincher consideration was mm. ridiculous because Fincher, I think at that point had done Alien 3, which was panned by almost everybody yeah. in the alien world. And you know, Fincher has, I mean, he's one of my favorite directors. But again, when you're talking about Seven, Gone Girl, uh, Mank, and you're looking at things, things like that, that does not fit cinematically, even especially in color tone. But, but uh, I mean, everything goes against putting him into a superhero film directorial chair that to me just doesn't make any sense mm -hmm. um 
so so while yeah it would have been super interesting and you absolutely you're absolutely right i think that on earth too there was going to be a hell of a david fincher spider-man saga i think for what we had to me it didn't make any sense and i'm really glad it didn't go that way because it might have ruined spider-man and fincher's career trajectory at that point it's so, possible and i mean honestly when it comes to sam raimi like and i I don't know if we've touched on this idea before, but something that's really great about the horror genre and specifically about horror filmmakers, and Chris knows this as a successful horror filmmaker in his own right, you know what to do with less. You know how to utilize every single bit of your budget, every single bit of your actors, every single bit of your equipment. And I think with a first outing, that was important. It was important to the studio to say, We are going to give you everything you need to succeed and no more than that. And you need to just make it work. And I think that helped Sam Raimi and was in his favor. And if you've, I mean, if you've listened to any of his interviews or any interviews, you know, of Bruce Campbell, Sam Raimi loves Spider-Man. Sam Raimi was a childhood Spider-Man fan. And I think... You know, we talked about the reason he was hired. I think a lot of that has to do with his passion for the character because he loves these characters. He knows these characters. He collected the comics when he was a kid. And being somebody of that world who is now making films and successfully making films and getting the opportunity to say, all right, we're thinking of making Spider-Man pitch us, you know, your idea. It's like, I have been waiting my entire <laughs> life to pitch you this True. idea. And I'm sure point. that that had, had a lot to do with it. And I think he was, you know, like Chris said, it was lightning in a bottle. It was the perfect place. It was the perfect time. And that also, I think, has to do with some of the some of the cast here. Because mm. the, the movie is essentially carried by three performances. Spider-Man, Mary Jane, and the Green Goblin. And... These three characters, getting them together, first of all, was like a whole deal. So Mary Jane Watson, I want to read off a list of actresses that were in the running for Mary Jane Watson. Oh, my God. <laughs> Kate Bosworth, Eliza Dushku, Mina Savari, Jamie King, and Elizabeth Banks all auditioned oh. to play Mary Jane Watson. Ah, uh, the early oh. 2000s. That El- last one, though. Elizabeth Banks yeah, was deemed too old by the studio, so they instead cast her as Betty Brandt. And Fuck watching you. the film, I'm like, you have 35-year-old high schoolers. I think we could stretch <laughs> this a little bit. because Toby McGuire was like 26 when that was made. Yeah. So I think Elizabeth Banks could have worked. Uh, they also offer straight up just offered the role to Kate Hudson, and she turned yeah. it down. She was Good. like, "No, I don't want part any part of this." Good for her. And Raimi actually initially wanted Alicia Witt to play the mm. character. Now I'm not super familiar with her work. Yeah, but she, yeah, she's but been in the horror realm for a little bit. She actually yeah. was. That makes uh, sense. Yeah, she actually, uh, she's not bad, but I don't think she's got, she's got natural red hair. Not that that makes a difference, oh. but she doesn't have the acting portfolio. I think that Kristen Dunst had or the trajectory that people right. thought that she would have in her career. Like at that point, she was definitely on the up and up, but that I did not know that. That's very interesting. She, yeah. She, yeah. And actually Kristen Dunst didn't even want to audition until after she found out that Tobey Maguire was cast oh, because yeah. as soon as he was cast, she 
thought, oh, this is going to be treated more like an indie film. So mm. let me audition for this. And she was cast a month before they started shooting. Uh, she was cast a month before they started shooting off of a self-tape that she did while <laughs> filming in Berlin. Like, wow. it's ridiculous. And then also diving into Green Goblin. I want to read off this list of names who were oh almost man. Norman Osborn. Okay, Buckle check up. this out. <laughs> Jason Isaacs, oh. John Malkovich, mm. Jim Carrey, Ooh. and Nicolas Cage. Okay, that last one, though. Can you imagine that... Nicolas Cage? No. <laughs> as Superman and Spider-Man? Or not uh, as, as Goblin? Forget that. That's terrible. That's, that's... But Malkovich wouldn't have been horrible. I mean, out of all those people, I think Malkovich maybe... But I mean, just I, the facial expressions of William uh, Defoe, it's like told, I saw Aragon, brother. That that dude would not have done well. Like I saw that movie. That that movie, the John Malkovich was terrible in that movie. He would have done the Jeez. same thing in this movie. Well, later on for uh for the unmade Spider-Man four, he was gonna be cast as the vulture oh. for that film, which I think would have been interesting. But of course, the role went to Willem Defoe, the man, the myth, the legend, and a quick little piece of trivia that I thought was really fun. Um, Willem Dafoe did all of his own stunts and insisted on being the person in the costume instead of any kind of stunt double because he wanted the physicality of the character to be consistent throughout the film. So badass. And it took took 30 minutes to get that suit on and off. So 30 minutes on, 30 minutes off, and spending all that time in the suit. So that man was a warrior in this film. One of my favorite actors, favorite actors all ridiculously good. Yeah, so good. And he looks so young in this film. Like, oh, God, yeah, is one of those actors who kind of always looks old, like Mm -hmm. at any point in time. But he looks quite young in this. Oh, yeah. Especially after seeing like the lighthouse. Now it's just like, oof. but age like fine wine, I have to say, like indeed goals. Agreed for sure. And then, of course, the Spider-Man. Spider-Man, there was a wide net cast for this. And the uh, actors that were in the running included Leo DiCaprio, who was brought on because of his consideration with uh, James Cameron's vision of the film. Freddie Prince Jr., who in an interview... Dur- during the press run when brought up to Sam Raimi he was he basically told the interviewer Freddie Prince Jr. won't even be allowed to buy a ticket to this film so apparently <laughs> oh. there's some Sam Raimi Freddie Prince Jr. drama going on there dang dang uh, Jude Law was also in the running that's too pretty uh, too Chris pretty. Klein Wes Bentley and Heath Ledger at the time who had been coming off of uh, films like uh, 10 things I hate about hate you. About you. Yeah. Um, they were all in the running at one point or another. Two other actors auditioned for this. James Franco and AJ Kincaid's favorite actor, Joe Manganiello, <laughs> both auditioned for the role of Peter Parker. Oh, that would have been terrible. That would have been, been terrible. terrible with Joe Manganiello. I love you, Joe. I love you. You make a way better Flash Gordon. You make a way Thompson. better Flash Gordon. Thompson, Thompson. thank you. Though a Flash Gordon by Joe Manganiello would be fun too. Oh, but, that would um, be. <laughs> but the production team liked them so much that eventually, of course, James Franco was cast in the role as Harry Osborn and Joe Manganiello as Flash Thompson. 
It ended up going to Tobey Maguire after Raimi saw him in The Cider House Rules, which was an indie film that I had to look up because I'd never <laughs> seen it before. But apparently Sam Raimi loved his his acting in that so much that he wanted to bring him on. And immediately team at Marvel, the team at Sony were like, we don't know about this kid. Um I don't know about this man like he's real skinny he doesn't like they wanted somebody who and I think this speaks to why Joe Manganiello is in the running the studio apparently wanted somebody who could fit in with those action titans Mm. those guys who were like gigantic and like oh we want this guy to be like sculpted like a Greek god and in response to that Tobey Maguire filmed this video it's hysterical because it's just him in jeans, no shirt, doing stunt a stunt fight. And there's that like there's that really like everyone who lived through the late 90s and early 2000s knows this sound. It's like the that sound. They mm-hmm. included it in his little like sizzle reel of him just beating up guys on a darkly on a really dimly lit set and it was like his response to be like i can do action too and i'm like you're such a dork yeah which makes you perfect for this version of peter parker (laughs) so eventually he was cast and how do you guys feel about the performances by dunce defoe and mcguire here i let the actor go first aj (laughs) (laughs) um oof it's interesting because i wouldn't say that the dialogue is meant to be like realistic because it's not like it's again like it's very 60s comic book which is what you know sam raimi was a fan of and knew and so it's it's one of those things of just like i mean william defoe is eating the set in every single thing that every single one every single one that every scene that he is in William Defoe is just doing an A plus job because he is just milking it like the 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 comparisons between William Defoe and Jack Nicholson in uh Batman are like are, it's it's almost like a straight line of just yeah. how much fun somebody's having on camera being... the scene where he's going up the elevator and his like eyes are like twitching and he's like yeah. all sweaty I'm just like God damn, Willem Dafoe. <laughs> right. Like this this is everything an actor is like looking for of just like, oh, this is this is my shot of playing like Richard the Third, or like just <laughs> something where I get to just be the bad guy. Um, I I think though, like, you know, Chris and Dunce for what she's given does try to find some relatability and some like reality and honesty that comes from her. Toby McGuire, I've never been the biggest fan of, to be completely honest with you. Fair. Like yeah like there's just and like seeing him in this is always just like oh i have a love for toby mcguire in these movies mainly because he's spider-man but <laughs> you know now i look at it and just like okay i mean again doing doing a good doing a good job showing up and like you know did his part am i you know am i thoroughly thoroughly impressed mm, not really but very enjoyable very believable very gets the job done for sure yeah, I that's I think that's also a victim of us being able to look back and see that we've had two other spider people since that person too. Sure, absolutely. At the time, you know, we've only seen an animated version of him, so to put a face, the name, he's likable, he's boyish, you know, 
when he takes his shirt off as and he boyish puts, as he can flat. look he's like yeah well then he's like <laughs> yeah i'm fine after he gets you know what i mean like he's got that transformation so i know the you know the girls that time are kind of swooning over him because i mean in 2002 a male body is very different than what it is in 2021 now so True. you know i mean if you look at hugh jackman and x-men and you know and wolverine his wolverine then is way different than it is now so oh yeah oh yeah you know so the body transformation part of it is, has been different. And the reason I bring it up is because I think that was part of Toby's appeal to the female audience. Um, and even maybe so the male audience, because a lot of males that went to see that film, they probably weren't in great shape. They probably had enjoyed, you know, comic books for calling you know, the, out the comic the, book. Well, fan. But, but isn't, I mean, at this point before it was cool to be a comic book, like today it's very, right. today reading comics is normal. It's fun. Pe people, there was a day and even says it in 21 jump street, um, when Channing Tatum's character is like, what the fuck is going on? Like comic books are cool now because he's the yeah. older guy going back to high school. He didn't get it. Now, you know, then it was a little different. Now you couldn't, then you can openly read comic books like and talk and refer to things that happened in these issues. Now you can, but then it's like, this is the celebration of all those people that had done that their entire lives. who had kind of been closeted that were now celebrated. This was their coming out party. This was their champion. Tobey Maguire was their Spider-Man. It was the every man. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't maybe so much identify with Wolverine or Blade or or any of the people that came in the in the, in the films before them. But Spider-Man was their guy. You know what I mean? So I think that, again, lightning in a bottle and perfect timing. It was it happened exactly how I guess history had hoped it would happen. So people could gravitate towards that. And then, again, we'll get into the money part about it and the success of it. But that is clearly demonstrated through the financial uh, records that it set later on. But. But as far as the acting performance goes, it's hard to knock William Defoe in anything. I totally agree with you yeah. guys on that part. Yeah. <laughs> Toby Maguire at the time, he was, I think he was great, but you're right. Andrew, looking back at him now, he's like, meh, I could go back. And if we were to change him out with maybe some, you know, I don't, what does it make it? If you change yeah. the actor, does the story change? Does it get better? Does it get worse? Does, it, does, the, does the movie change? And I don't know if Toby Maguire is like, it needs to be Toby. Or I could argue that I think that the Amazing Spider-Man films really need to have Andrew Garfield. So, mm -hmm. you know, th there is that interesting dynamic when it comes to the performances in this trilogy. So I, I agree with what you're saying, AJ, about Toby Maguire. Um, but I think that our knowledge of the other Spider-Man work against us in this case. For sure. I, I definitely agree. And I think that that does speak to probably why people have such a fondness for this like there there are people that i know that are like it's toby spider-man or bust every spider-man yeah. since has been garbage and it might be because yeah. of that emotional connection of that being like sure. this was the first time that i felt seen as like a comic book nerd i remember the time i remember of getting course, beat yeah. up for being a nerd like it was it sucked and like it was kind of the celebration of nerd culture and being able to say yeah like i like comic books and now if you watch this movie so do you sucker yeah, and exactly i think that does translate to the performances in a way um like you guys said it is very heightened it is very campy it is very silly at times it is absolutely 60s and 70s comic book dialogue of uh, the time the moment where like um peter's like well well when when spider-man asked me what i thought of when i saw you i i felt happy and then and also sad and i was excited and also depressed and i'm like this is bad like this is really yeah. like and her response is beautiful because she's just like 
okay. It just kind of nods, and I'm like, oh, he's so cringy in this entire movie, and I kind of love it. It's weird, because I think that Kirsten Dunst and Tommy McGuire are wonderful in their roles in every single scene except the scenes that they're together. Right? <laughs> because I just, I don't, at least in this film, I do not see the connection. I do not see Agreed. the chemistry. Agree. She has much more chemistry with James Franco. With Franco, yes. Yeah, I, I wonder why. That. Absolutely. <laughs> True. And it's it's just it's really interesting because I think there is a certain amount of you need that connection because in essence this is yeah. you know Raimi's entire trilogy is a love story in three acts mm-hmm. and we'll discuss it as we go along but like. The film itself is this, you know, this great like celebration of Spider-Man as a character. And I think that has, you know, that translates into a lot of the performances. Um, some other performances I definitely want to shout out as well. Um, all of the supporting cast and background characters are amazing. Um, thousand percent. Everyone is so committed, and I'm sure that there was a lot of you know Sam Raimi direction. But there is, and every single time I, I this got pointed out to me. I remember there's this YouTube video that I watched, but there is this kid. He is this overweight glasses kid who's always in the background of the high school sequences, and he is doing the most at all times. <laughs> like. It, you know, when we have that like scene of like the fight in the hallway where Joe Manganello, a 38 year old man, is fighting against How Peter Parker, you. a 27 year old man. How dare it you. is very. Do not lie. Okay. Joe Manganello in no world like, is a high schooler in this. Movie. No, he's. Yeah, I, I will admit that. He's held back for 10 years. But I, <laughs> it is. I, the teacher that they have in the scene where they go oh, yeah. to Oz to Oscorp <laughs> looks younger than Joe Manganello. You, you're 100 <laughs> like, right on that. Flash Thompson is going to beat up this teacher. You're, I I think though they were the same age though, but, and like I only bring this up because I think there's a funny story you can watch of Joe Manganello online where he retells a time where where one of the crew members comes up to him and says, "Hey, just a." We got a bet going on behind crew. We'll give you a hundred bucks if you real punch him in the face. We're just saying, me, yes, I heard guys. this story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two guys are just going to say it was an accident. And just one of the lighting guys who was like moving something, like it was hearing the conversation, looks over at Joe and just nods. He's like, I'm, <laughs> I'm not punching, I'm not punching a guy in the face. I'm not punching a dude in the face. No. Because, yeah, apparently, like there is this rumor that Toby Maguire was very difficult to work with. I don't know. There's been different reports here and there, but apparently he was not very well liked uh, by the casting crew, which is funny. Uh, And like that idea of like, oh, yeah, we're going to conspire to beat up this kid (laughs) because Joe Manganiello would break him in half over his knee easily. (laughs) Yeah, because he's 38 (laughs) years old. Um, But yeah, the kid is in the the background character in the back is just like what whoa yeah like just really into it and i freaking love it um i also gotta shout out our aunt may and uncle ben rosemary harris and cliff robertson oh my god if you want to talk about translated from the comic book page like 
there is no better like translation than Aunt May and Uncle Ben in this movie. Mm-hmm. Rosemary Harris is an absolute powerhouse in every single scene, even the one where she's just screaming from evil. <laughs> but Cliff Robertson is Uncle Ben. Like, there's no, I mean, it's so good. So good. And he is absolutely the scene where like he's having the conversation with Peter and he's just like, and I know I'm not your father. And Peter goes, well, stop pretending to me breaks my heart every time. Oh, yeah. So well acted. You could see the pain in his eyes. And it's oh, man, it's great. They are incredible. And you really feel the loss when Uncle Ben dies because they spend the first, you know, 20 25 minutes getting you invested in this character mm-hmm. and really getting you to feel that loss. And then of course, the actor we haven't mentioned yet, saving the best for last, JK Simmons as J <laughs> Jonah Jameson, iconic. 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 Yeah. One of the best casting of a comic book character of all time. Period. Full yeah. stop. Nailed it. Yeah. absolutely nailed it and like such a at the time such a hidden gem yeah that, like we look at today and it's just like wow what a powerhouse of an actor and like then was just like all right that's that one dude that i see every now and again on tv or movies here or there it's yeah. funny because i still kind of feel that way like oh he's the, the state farm guy well no he's also the guy that was on you know uh whiplash man yeah, yeah. That, yeah thank you and so it's like it's funny because He's just that chameleon where he could be that goofy dude wearing that tweed sports coat. And he can also be the real asshole instructor who's like, yeah, I think that's great. I think that that's wonderful. See, see, in my opinion, if you change out that actor with a different actor, the film suffers. Absolutely. Right? It's it different. Absolutely. So that's the you know the point I was making for with, with Toby. But yeah, I, I 100% yeah. agree. And you can get a lot of like third tier characters in a film like this that can really have gem like performance yes. like 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 what I mean, like with Ben and we we haven't talked about the quote yet you know with great power comes great responsibility that quote has been t- i mean it's been parodied i mean at least two twice a month since then so yeah. a lot came out from their interaction so yeah i i absolutely agree yeah and uh, it was I believe, and I'm sure someone's going to tell tell me that I'm wrong, but it <laughs> might have been one of the first instances that Uncle Ben actually says that line. Because in the original comics, he doesn't say it. It's this, oh. you know, unnamed narrator that says, you know, at the end of the origin story, and he learned that with great power, there must also come great responsibility. And it's like, you never find out who this narrator is. But like, this was one of the first instances, at least that I can think of, of actually seeing Uncle Ben say that phrase. It's fair. And it sells it. It yeah. absolutely sells it. Yeah. Has that phrase been uttered in any of the other two Spider-Man reboots? We're going to get to it. But there's this amazing, and I pun intended, there's this amazing (laughs) moment in Amazing Spider-Man. And again, (laughs) we're going to talk about it. Where the Uncle Ben, who is played by um, Martin Sheen, I believe. Martin Sheen. um, Does this entire speech and says the thesis statement of that without actually saying the words. And Mm -hmm. it's it's incredible. It's incredible. We're going to talk about it when we get to that film. But... Yeah, it is really cool 
how much that thesis statement on Spider-Man, great power, great responsibility, does really carry through all three of these films, but especially in this film. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the idea of taking this and really kind of taking it through the production of it as well, and really saying we are going to present this as earnestly, as comic booky, and as sincerely as possible helped to sell why this movie was so successful and why it's such a touchstone in the grand scope of Spider-Man films. Um, mm -hmm. The the scene transitions, I mean, making it feel like a comic book, the montages, everybody knows how much I love a good montage. And there are montages aplenty in this film. And I just, I really, really love it. I think that it's as campy and fun as it should be. And I'll be honest, I didn't think it was going to hold up. Going back to revisit this, I mean, it's an almost 20-year-old film. It's going to be 20 years old next year, which is crazy to me to think about. Dang. Um, but I did not think I was going to enjoy it as much because we've gotten much more grounded, much more, um, I would say, like, realistic, as realistic can be, <laughs> that kind of removed some of the camp that was featured in this film. But I really dug the campy moments. I loved, you know, Willem Dafoe being over-the-top Gene Hackman, Norman Osborn. <laughs> like, I really enjoyed how dorky and dopey Peter Parker was and how, like, kind of a bad friend Harry Osborn is. Harry Osborn's yeah. a bad friend in this film. He just is. And having moments where it's like, you know, Green Goblin after that initial fight flying away, like, I'll get you, Spider-Man. <laughs> I mean, the voice, the Green Goblin voice where he's just like, you know, we're not so different, you and I. And like, just it's beautiful. And it it's, sells it as like a comic book come to life. Mm -hmm. Completely agree. Like, yeah. to me, I think it's you kind of touched on it before on like what makes this movie and this whole franchise you know so good is that like each theme or kind of like each point of like what the film is trying to say is that with great power comes great responsibility and with that overall just sort of idea that the film can always root back to and always stem from you have this cohesive story that works just so well over and over and over again and the quirkiness from um the director just makes it so good whenever you come back to it or show it to somebody new the first time like i think it's you know, kind of rewatching it, it kind of blew my mind just how good of like a comic book like movie. And I, I hate saying that phrase, but like that's <laughs> what I like. Th like this franchise is what I think about because they just it, of that like phrase. It makes it this this one especially nails it time and time again. Yeah, no, 100 percent. Absolutely agree. And I think that as a result of the success of this film, how well it translated. It got us some box office, which <laughs> takes us to everyone's favorite segment, <laughs> Chris's number quarter. <laughs> Chris, well, give it, us the facts. Give us the numbers. The floor is yours, sir. So it's it's wild, yeah, yeah. right? So I'm, I'm looking at these numbers and and the budget for for the for the Spider-Man we're talking about it was 140 million dollars, 139. Um, the Can wild... I just un that, I can't understand how cheap that is. 
Well, I know. And looking at the other ones, the next closest one, of course, was Venom, but that's really Spider-Man. We, uh, even Into the Spider-Verse was $90 million. So the next closest budgeted film for this was Far From Home, which was $160 million, if you can believe that. Um, so we got $140 million, $139. It was, it's wild because we're talking about production value. We're talking about we're trying to make the most with the least, which I absolutely agree with you, Eric. I think, horror, I think indie directors especially if you created your own franchise you have an intimate knowledge on how to stretch that dollar 140 million opening weekend and it's imp- and there's another fact that i'm going to get to after this it's it, it's 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 astounding to me opening weekend they made 114 million dollars 114 now today it's okay today it's like okay that's a good opening i mean eric's f whatever franchise they do that every time they come out oh it's 108 uh, million it's uh, whatever it is f- <laughs> oh god you know, so we're used to seeing a hundred million dollar weekend openings for tentpole films. You know, Avengers did it. Most of the Iron Man films did it. We, we were used to that now. But before this, there wasn't one. There wasn't one film that opened over a hundred million dollars before Spider-Man's did. Wow. So it's important to see, and again, not just in an origin story, not just as a film story, as a comic book story, as an origin story, but as a financial standpoint that before this, the measure of its success was no, they weren't even in the same ballpark. It wasn't heard of to hear that your film made over a hundred million dollars in the first weekend. And it made $114 million. So it's, and with that, I will say that it outpaced every other Spider-Man film, save for two that have been released. And that includes the Tom Holland films too. So it's, wow, you know, I, you Dang. know, the, and not to shit anybody's prey because I, we have another coming up, but Spider-Man 3 was the highest grossing film of the Spider-Man series of all of them, which is sad. Wild. Um, but the expectations were super high, which again is a tribute to how well people receive this Spider-Man. It's the beginning of the pyramid, so we expect the tip to be a certain level, which it wasn't. Um, <laughs> and so it, it's just such it's just such a big deal. I cannot, again, $100 million dollars, we hear it all the time now, but we didn't hear it all then. And it's such a big deal nowadays. And off of a budget that was 139 million, it ended up grossing hundred and two. I'm sorry, 821 million worldwide. 800, and this is where the numbers kind of slip because at this point, there are a couple other Spider-Men that have earned more than that, probably because of the legs, VOD. Most of these are, you know, are more recent, although Spider-Man 3, um, you know, it's, it's unreasonably high and far from home at this point because of the legs it had and because of all the screens you can pin that on. And a big part of it too is because China releases some of these films too. That's a big part overseas releasing. I don't mm-hmm. think Spider-Man 2002 had that abil- availability where now you'll, you'll get a second run in China and that will supplement most of your advertising budget. If not half of your initial, it, you know, so far from home, it made $1.1 billion. Right. So this is an 821. But again, if you adjust those numbers, which I will not do because I don't know how, however, <laughs> money in 2002, 821 million. Money in 2019, 1.1 billion. So we're about, you know, $4 million off, I'm thinking. Or no, I'm sorry, $400 million off. So if you adjust for inflation over 20 years, I think you're going to get pretty close. Yeah. So all things being considered. So and, and, you know, I, I just, I think about it, about the money part of it. And as, and as all three of us kind of being creators and as a filmmaker, and you just kind of, you point to a start, 
You point to there was a before and then there was an after. And the before was everything prior to 2002 Spider. And I have problems with it too, guys. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to wax <laughs> nostalgic about it. I didn't love it. Um, mm -hmm. But everything that happened before and everything, that this is the apex. This is where it changed to now. If your movie doesn't get $100 million and your, your budget is, you know, pretty high, then you have failed as a production company, you know? So it, it was it was wild. And just so we know that um, it wasn't overtaken opening weekend wise until pirates of the caribbean dead man's chest opened Ooh. to 136 oh, i'm sorry 135 million in 2006 so not for four years after so that record stood for four years that's fantastic um, yeah and that success equaled out to some awards <laughs> six awards specifically uh, the film and a lot of it has to do with that score with the amazing sound design so it won the BMI Film Music Award for Danny, Danny Elfman's score. Uh, it won the Empire Award for Best Actress for Kirsten Dunst. Uh, won the Golden Trailer Award for Best Voiceover, specifically for Tobey Maguire, who did most of the voiceover in the film. It won two MTV Movie Awards. <laughs> oh. First for uh, Best Female Performance from Kirsten Dunst and Best Kiss I knew it. Toby and Kirsten. <laughs> I mean, the upside down kiss. Do you, it's iconic. Do you it's, guys remember? It's not iconic. good. That yeah, maybe not, not good. Are, are young as shit. But there was a bit. There was a time when the MTV Music and Movie Awards that was a big deal. Like, yeah. oh a, yeah, it was a big deal to be to For, be young and hip and to be accepted by young Hollywood and old Hollywood. And they had this, you know, and it was a now. You know, no one gives a shit now because you know. But it was <laughs> yeah, a big deal because they're yeah, basically the Nickelodeon. Long. Kids' Choice Awards now. That's true. Oh but my God, that's you got so slimed, true. it was a big deal. Oh man. Right. Uh, we also, uh, the film also got the Saturn Award for Best Music for Danny Elfman. And mm -hmm. it was nominated for not just two Grammy Awards, but two Academy Awards as well. Hmm. Oh. Didn't win, but it was nominated. So it was pretty successful. Um, yeah. Chris, you mentioned some negatives. Uh, there are, this film isn't spotless. You know, it, it has, it does show a bit of its age. Mm -hmm. um, we talked about already, like, there is no chemistry between Kristen Dunst and Tobey Maguire whatsoever. Um, I also, I, I can't get over that, that Power Ranger Green Goblin costume. It's, it just looks bad. Yeah. yeah. It looks bad, especially when you see some of the stuff that they could have done. They, there's this video of this animatronic goblin mask that looks just like like an actual goblin and it like moves with his face and it like it was so good but mm -hmm. apparently they didn't want to do that because reasons so it's it it is unfortunate i do think that the kids look entirely too old yeah. um and you could kind of tell that toby mcguire was still settling into the spider-man role here he doesn't really hit the apex of his, you know, Spider-Man performance. Um, Chris, do you have any other uh, specific negatives? For me, it was this is the first time I had seen a film that was predominantly had um, a CG, the CGI character on on camera, and mm. that was my biggest thing was that it wasn't. And again, this is two thousand and two, so I again, I, right now we're looking at it as a victim of, of what we know now. But at the time, it was brand new, and it's not what I had expected because by now uh jurassic park had been out um, you know, the abyss had been out terminator 2 you know we had seen excellent uh cgi done and I, I, for me personally when i 
I, I get that it looked cool, but it felt a little artificial for me. And mm. young Chris at the time had an issue like separating, you know, the story and, and, and the way it was kind of shown, like I couldn't really identify, or I really couldn't, I couldn't get behind something that was CGI for the most part. And um, that really stuck with me. I, I remember not liking it. I remember hating the chemistry between uh, Toby and there's a story behind that too. Um, young Toby McGuire. And do you guys know that he used to kind of pal around with DiCaprio and mm -hmm. okay. So I guess that was one was of the leading contributors to them being cast together in great Gatsby. Yes, very much. Mm. So, which didn't happen until years later though. And mm -hmm. they, they had said that finally that it happened that I guess there was an issue with him and Kirsten, I think at some place downtown again, all this is pre internet, pre cell phone, pre Instagram. So it's like, you can, this is word of mouth by mouth by mouth. Of course. But I, you know what I mean? So, so there was a little bit of that. And Toby was known to have been challenging to work with because I mean, or just like, you know, like, Chris Evans early career, which we could say that this is Toby's early career at this point. Absolutely. You know, um, they were a little difficult. They were a little, they were young, they were handsome. They were living in Los Angeles and they were in films. Like the, how you took your craft when you were in your early twenties is very different than how you approach your craft when you were in your early thirties. Absolutely. So completely agree. You know, I think that in the, in a, again, in the early 2000s, the party scene, I think that Toby might've been part of that. And again, I'm not shitting on Toby, but it kind of has been said that he has been challenging to work with, to say the least and as mildly as I can say it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that played a part into, like you're mentioning him settling into the role, because I don't think anybody knew, maybe Sam Raimi knew the gravity of what they were kind of going into. I don't think they knew that it would spawn two sequels. Maybe they hoped, but you know, they were, they knew that the Spider-Man IP was loved by people across the world and to come into something that like imagine i don't imagine toby mcguire being a big you know comic book guy so he's just playing a role in a film you know he didn't realize that the burden that came along with it and in, in, in the work and effort so but again toby mcguire's performance again just to what andrew had said if you take him out and plug some way i don't think the movie suffers which Fair. to me is an issue, but you know, I like Christians. I really liked Franco's. I liked when the three of them were on camera and we get more of that. And I think that Absolutely. they knew that in the second one. And which is why I, the second one was awesome for me. I love the second one. And then, but the first one to me was, you know, it wasn't great for, for a, for a few different reasons. And also Sam Raimi's neur neuroticness of having to get that shot with the play. <laughs> we haven't talked about that. And like, that's one of the biggest BTS things that there is on this when it comes to the director and his love of practical effects, which again, you see in Evil Dead and you see in some of his other earlier works, but this is completely unnecessary. And I wonder um, if there were other things on this set that maybe kind of happened that way that we don't know about that could have been problematic. But for the most part, I mean, 7.3 on IMDb, 90% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, 73% on Metacritic. You know, so a lot of people, like you say, really enjoy it, but I think they enjoy it for the same reason that people enjoy some of the Star Wars films because of where you are at in your window in life. This is like a, a picture of that, you know, sure. so, you know. Um, and and, and you were awesome. speaking specifically about the tray thing, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. I'm sorry. I, I, I glossed over, but yes, we, uh, yeah, that's the tray where he has to catch, like, there's like an apple, a juice box. Something. Like a bowl was, of like exciting, salad yeah. or something. Like this is completely unnecessary. This is not add to the movie, Sam. Let's get to the show it, on the road. It took it took them like thirty seven or thirty eight yeah. takes or something. Oh god. Yeah. But crazy. But, I would be difficult to work with too if I had to do dude, that for thirty eight right? takes. <laughs> I guess yeah. that's true. I guess that's true. Yeah. So, AJ, any uh, any 
thing that didn't work for you in the film? Oh, I mean, again, the dialogue, most of how it's written. And it's kind of hard to take Willem Dafoe seriously at times. Like, it's great. It's fun. It's fun to watch what he's doing. He's entertaining, but I wouldn't say I'm taking him seriously. Um, Yeah, like some of the costume choices, like I... There's something about Tobey Maguire's suit that looks so plastic and stiff. Like, it, like mm. it both like has the benefit of looking like an action figure because it makes you want to buy an action figure. But at the same time, like you look at it and just go, that can't be comfortable. No. That just can't be comfortable. Yeah. Um, you know, like, God, like there, there are other things. I like the use of practical effects. I do think that some, I would agree, like, 38 takes of trying to do this one idea <laughs> that like would it like yeah would be really great if we get it but like is it really worth it at this point when like <laughs> filming is ten dollars per or point millisecond and yeah I, I again and i go back to toby mcguire of just like i'm just not not a big fan like i've, I've seen him in a few other things and it's always the same of just like i just I just I I just don't like what what he does as, a, as an artist or how uh, he does his craft. Yeah. Um, I think that, yeah, like anybody else on that list could have done a fine enough job as Peter Parker. And Kristen Dunst is great. She's doing the best with what she's got. I wouldn't say she is my first choice for Mary Jane, though. And like, that's kind of something that like it's obviously Elizabeth Banks. I, I mean, like, <laughs> if, if like head to my gun, if I had to choose between the two, I would have gone with Elizabeth Banks because there's more of that flirty fireness to Elizabeth mm. Banks than there is with Kristen Dunst is so girl next door, which to me isn't Mary Jane. But for this for, for this version of Mary Jane, like is what you need. So right. I both again, like I'm kind of like how Chris is saying it's just like but like I get memories from when I was nine years old watching this Fuck movie. you. And it's <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 we won't say how old yeah. Chris was in 2002. <laughs> he definitely wasn't nine years old. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's the same. Like, I can sit through The Phantom Menace and have a fun time. And, like, I can sit through this and still think it's a fun time. So not a whole like would I say it's a stellar movie. Is this a beautiful piece of cinema? No, no, I would not. not. <laughs> but it's a it's still a good time. So as we're wrapping up here, our first episode of the Spider-Man films, uh, I'm going to ask for final thoughts. And then if you could give it your arbitrary Geeksplain rating out of 10, we'll start with Chris. I have a question about our rating, though. Are we rating against what we know now about all the Spider-Man films? Or... We're rating just the film itself. Okay. Gotcha. And we can do We can do a ranking later, but just out of 10, what the film is on its own. Okay. Um, final thoughts is it's in, it's impossible to not look at the success that it had. And again, lightning in the bottle, it's post the, the year after nine 11, it's a very raw, raw film. People needed that. People wanted it. It's very American in that you sense. You mess with too. one of us. You mess with all of us. Yeah, is, is yeah. It, is, is, that's like the rallying cry at that time too. So I think that that's, that really helped it. I think the playfulness and the goofiness helped it. And I don't think that flies today, but that's okay. In 2002, when you're starting something, it, 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 I mean, it took off. So mm -hmm. it's impossible to look at this film and say it's not successful. I can't, I, by no measure, can I say that this film was not successful. And, and by that metric, I have to say that be outside of the acting, which I've seen 
I've sat through films that I think are good, but are acted horribly that have done exceptionally well. And then I sat through films that I think that the complete opposite, like Ad Astra is a huge deal. Like I loved how Ad Astra looked, but it was fucking horrible. And so there are, <laughs> there are, there are concessions that you make. And I think the concession that we have to make for this film, knowing with what we know was at the time, it was almost flawless. I mean, it was exactly what people wanted, needed. And so by that metric, I have to say that in my ranking system, I have to give it a nine. Be, uh, the acting, uh -huh. the, the acting itself. I mean, granted, yeah, but it still worked. So in this case, I have to think of myself. Well, maybe I'm just not seeing something. I'm a wise enough person to know that if I can't <laughs> see it, everybody else can. Maybe I missed the boat. You've so, gotten so wise in your age, Chris. My old age, right? Uh, I'll push in seventy-five now. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I would. I, I would honestly. This rating will change when we go through our overall ranking, though. I just wanted for to sure. sit by that. But Absolutely. I say, I say nine out of ten. I say I give it a nine for sure. Adrian? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of a little bit more harsh to it. I mean, I think like out of most the rate, <laughs> ratings at the end, I'm usually the more harsh one. What? But no. I, no. When did that happen? No. Never. Yeah. No. Um, you know, again, like taking off nostalgic uh, glasses, kind of like looking at it with fresh perspective and taking in age to account that it is almost 20 years old. Like it goes like it the number always like fluctuates throughout the movie for me there are parts that i think are like a four there are parts i think that are are a nine or like an eight or or something like that so i i'm meeting in the middle as to like something like a six or six and a half in that like chris said at the time was a nine and was what we needed and was something groundbreaking and was something game-changing but right now with age and some things with, you know, some of the cast and some of like the things how some people have turned out into the later years and just how, how film has kind of changed in itself. Like it's, it still does hold up, but I would, I would say that some things just don't. Totally fair. Totally fair. Um, I, I agree with both of you guys. Like it's, it's a film that we can't ignore the cultural significance of it. We can't ignore how monumental it was at the time, the impact that it's left, what it started. Uh, but at the same time, we can't ignore its age. We can't ignore some of the more, um, we'll say, eccentric choices made with mm. casting, with dialogue. Um, I still think there's a lot that's great about it. I mean, we didn't mention it, but I love that silly wrestling match with Bonesaw <laughs> McGrum. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and I love, you know, for how old the cgi looks i still do like seeing spider-man swinging through the city the final swing is one of my favorite moments in the entire film and one of my favorite you know spider-man film moments because it just feels so triumphant uh the score is delicious the score is incredible absolutely sets the table for you um any of the Spider-Man and Green Goblin scenes are incredible, so fun, so wacky, but also, like, you can tell that that's definitely Willem Dafoe in that <laughs> suit, because there is some things that just cannot be done, and it's definitely a film that I didn't expect to enjoy as much as I did. I thought I would be rating it lower, but... As it stands, I'm gonna give it a seven and a half, seven and a half out of ten. Okay. Um, it's just it's it's a good solid film. Mm -hmm. Um, 
as we talked about, there are things that I wasn't crazy about, but there are things that I absolutely adored. Um, and we, t you know, we talked about it in our DC list where I like camp. I like silly shit. You know, that's that's something that that's a crossroads that Chris and I will have to disagree on forever. But I really enjoyed a lot of the earnestness of this film. And I don't think that that's something we get as much now. Um, again, these rankings, these ratings may change and they probably will as we go further along here, but that is going to do it for our inaugural installment going through the entire Spidey franchise in the run up yeah. to no way home. Oh. Uh, tune in next time as we dive into maybe the most iconic Spider-Man film of all time, Spider-Man two, but for now, <sighs> <laughs> for now for geeks Flame, this is eric azana and we will see you next time <laughs>